I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Welcome once again to another edition of I-94 here on Lumpen Radio. As always, my name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. Mr. Michael Sack has the day off. You guys are switching off your vacations kind yeah, of strangely. Yeah. yeah, He's out in Washington. Is he hunting narwhals as well? That was what you were doing last week, yes, wasn't it? Yes, Yeah, okay. Did a birthday up in Wisconsin. Very nice. Yeah. Happy birthday, by the way. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. Hey, today we're being joined by the author, Makita Brotman. She's got a new book out, Couple Found Slain After a Family Murder. Uh, it's out from Henry Holt. It is a nonfiction book and we're joined by Makita. She's coming to us from Wilmington, Delaware today. Makita, thanks for making time to speak to us today. Well, thank you for having me. Really, really appreciate it. So uh, this is the story and, you know, correct me if I'm paraphrasing this incorrectly, but this is the story of a young man uh, who is in a mental institution in America after he has um, killed both his parents. And it is the story um, of how he is kind of stuck there in a lot of ways. Um, you started this out in kind of a, I would say, a sort of a true crime way, but instead of um, dwelling on, I think, the normal tropes of a true crime book, you've kind of gone beyond that and talked about what happens to the people who are caught up in a family murder uh, after they're sentenced and after they're convicted in, a, in the United States. And it's a fairly interesting and, I would say, in some ways damning portrait of how psychiatric institutions work. I'd like to start off with how you got interested and and how you came to this case in the first place. Well, um, I was I actually met Brian when I was volunteering. I had a sabbatical from my uh, academic job in 2013, and I was volunteering teaching uh, fiction both in a prison and in a psychiatric hospital. And um, Brian was one of the patients in my group at the psychiatric hospital where you were reading mostly short stories like contemporary modern fiction and it was it was not a clinical group it was a i was a volunteer there it was a, a, a not not um, therapeutic it was meant to be a kind of you know extra activity for them to to pass the time and i was kind of struck by how engaged brian was and how open and relaxed and helpful and smart i mean all the patients were, were surprisingly stable and um, enthusiastic but brian in particular and after uh, one of the group meetings, I talked to him for a while, and I found that he'd been in the hospital for over 20 years, which, which surprised me, again, because he seemed so stable. And the average stay was around five or six years. So I, I wondered what he'd done and why he was in the hospital so long. Well, I learned that he'd killed his parents when he was a young man, and that's kind of a typical crime that these patients, this is a forensic psychiatric hospital, so it's patients who've been found not criminal responsible, which is the Maryland version of um, not guilty by reason of insanity, although some of them were, were, were there just to, uh, to see if they were competent to stand trial. So, um, so it, even though it's a horrible, horrendous crime, it wasn't unique. Um, and in fact, parasite the killing of one's parents used to be known as the schizophrenic crime because among schizophrenics who commit crimes it's not unusual um and so when brian told me his story i wanted to write about it because it was so interesting and, and disturbing in in some ways but also because while i'm a true crime fan i'm also i also don't really like kind of genre true crime and i'm really interested in the things that, that most true crime leaves out whether it's the um, ordeals of the people on the periphery of the crime, like the victims' families, and um, and but I'm also interested in like the the other side. Most true crime ends when someone is arrested or sent to prison, and the, you know the perpetrator is punished, and and that's the end. But for most young men in that situation, perpetrators, it's just the beginning. So I wanted to tell a true crime story that actually. Uh, shows things from the point of view of the perpetrator without diminishing the crime. And you, you are also trained in psychoanalysis as well. I mean, um, you, you came to the United States and you, you teach in the Department of Humanities at Maryland. So you had some experience with um, psychoanalysts and psychiatry. Was, it, was Brian's case um, unusual at Perkins? Were there other people that had been kind of caught in this limbo or was he a real outlier? He was definitely an outlier. I mean, there are 
patients who've been there longer than Brian, but not many. But now he's been there 27 years. So he's been there longer than most doctors and, and certainly longer than most patients. So yeah, his case, I mean, definitely an outlier. There's certainly patients who've been there for a long time. And as I said, one or two have been there longer than him. And it's common for patients to leave and then come back and leave and come back again. But I hadn't met any, any patient who'd been there for, for so long, um, and especially when patients who'd committed similar crimes or what one might consider even worse crimes had been released after relatively short periods of time. And I eventually found out that it seemed to be that Brian had uh, acted out in various ways, tried to escape and uh, attacked people and um, things that are actions that I see as a kind of natural response to be in that situation, but in Brian's case have been like seen as a symptom of his pathology. And th that seemed to be at the root of him being kept there for so long. But yeah, definitely an outlier, definitely not common. Makita, I wanted to ask you uh, this pre-case, pre uh, well, I'm sorry, not pre-case, but when you were working with these patients as, you know, teaching them uh, short story writing and fiction, they were writing stories as well, correct? Um, I, I asked them to write stories and gave them the opportunity to write stories, but they actually didn't because they, they were, most of them didn't think that I was there as a volunteer and they were afraid that anything that they wrote might be used against them. So they were very reluctant to put anything in writing because it, they felt it might be used in their, put in their files, which is kind of distressing. Yeah, that's that's what it said in the book. And I, I you just reminded me of that. And it just seems like a way for, you know, you said you weren't an art therapist, but it would be a way to get some things out. But I could see also how there's a catch-22 there. You know, if they write something and they're like, oh, this, you know, he's he or she's writing this, she could be, we definitely need to keep him here longer. One of the things that I thought was very perplexing was just, you, you know, you talked about doctor turnover, and it was just like each doctor would assign these pathologies on him. And, like, I, I, I believe one of them had only known him for a very, very short period of time when he came up for uh, to be released. And it, it just seems like a a very wasteful system, like there's no nobody's really putting any effort into it. Is that Do you think that's a fair analogy? I don't think it's a question of putting in effort. I mean, I think that the psychiatrists, they may not come across as sympathetic in the book, and from, from Byron's perspective, they're not, but I, I don't think they're necessarily you know, lazy or, or um, inept in any way. I just think that it's, it's very, there's a huge caseload of patients, and I, I just think it's a question of like overwork, um, low prestige for psychiatrists to work, you know, for the uh, for the state in a in a forensic hospital like that, um, the pay it isn't great, and there's a huge caseload of patients, and it's more than most people can handle. And I think it's just a question of like underfunding and overcrowding. So psychiatrists simply can't spend as much time as they they need to with individual patients, and can't get to know them in a way that a psychiatrist, but really should get to know them. And so in most cases, um, a, 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 a new psychiatrist will look at a patient's file, this was in my experience, and copy down whatever the, the previous psychiatrist had, had diagnosed them with. Um, and so diagnoses just get continued from, you know, from doctor to doctor without any fresh insight or fresh evaluation. And even when you do have new evaluation, the doctors still read the file. So in their mind is this previous diagnosis. And you know, as as you probably know, there's no people are not cured from schizophrenia. They're seen as in remission or stable. And so, if someone has been diagnosed as a schizophrenic, and if they've committed a terrible crime, then it's 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 going to be very difficult for a psychiatrist to approach them with a completely new perspective. Well, but I mean, let's let's back up a little bit because I mean, I think we may be getting ahead of the, the story here. I mean. Your your subject, Brian Beckhold, did kill his parents, um, and you you go quite into detail about the kind of unhappy uh, home life yeah, uh, of his, his father. Yeah, that was absolutely horrendous. Yeah, I mean, you know, there there seems to be some I don't want to say mitigating circumstances, but you, there's certainly some understandable things that are going on there. Uh, Brian then um, 
turns himself into police in another state and, and claims that he was possessed by the devil and then uh, that, that Jesus told him to confess his sins and repent. And, you know, I, I think, and you make this point in your book, some people have thought that when uh, somebody is found not guilty in America of a horrible crime by reason of insanity, they're actually dodging responsibility for that. Uh, and you point out that the pendulum's kind of shifted back and forth. You, you make the case of John Hinckley Jr., who shot you know Ronald Reagan in an assassination attempt. Um, you talk about how, you know, in in some ways, trying to relieve people who are clearly insane uh, of putting them in in jails is supposed to be a more humane alternative because society has judged that they were not responsible because they couldn't understand their actions. Um, so a place like Perkins, which is the, the mental uh, institution that you talk about in your book, is supposed to really be more than a holding cell. It's supposed to be a place where these people can heal and, and ultimately come back into society. But do you think that one of the problems is when somebody is you know, found uh, guilty of insanity, uh, criminal insanity, that there's an extra burden that people are not ready to second guess the opinions of doctors, that people are, are, are also maybe have it in the back of their mind that uh, there needs to be some punishment for the crimes they committed? I think you're right on both of those accounts. Even though a, a patient, someone like Brian, who's committed a double homicide and has been a judge not criminal and responsible, even though what we're saying is that this person is not not guilty, not responsible for their crimes. We know they committed them, but they didn't they were out of their mind. They didn't know what they were doing. And so we we we're saying that that person is a patient, a hospital patient, they're sick, they're ill and and they need treatment. and they're not they're, they're not given an inmate number. They're allowed to wear their own clothes. They're allowed to have visitors. They're allowed to, you know, receive um, state benefits if they if they're eligible. And so we're we're saying this is not a person who is being punished by the state or having things taken away from them. In fact, quite the contrary. They have they should have things given to them. But it doesn't work that way. And I think it's it's that you you put your finger on the reason. It's because we just these people have committed terrible crimes and we can't forget that. And we. This is not really a hospital. It's somewhere between a hospital and a prison, and we we still feel that they that they they need to be punished somehow. I think there's still some kind of you know some puritanical sense that we that these these people might commit further crimes, and that they're not ill in the same way that someone with a broken leg is ill. That there's something morally wrong with them. And I think that's one of the things that we're we're afraid of. We're speaking with the author, Makita Brotman. She's got a new book out called Couple Found Slain After a Family Murder. It's available from Henry Holt. And in fact, we're going to hear some of Makita's words right now. As always, we want to thank our reader, Shanna Van Volt. Music today was provided by Jamie Branch, who played live for this. So thank you to her and to the Fly or Die Quartet. We'll be right back in conversation with Makita after this excerpt from her book. The younger officer asked him what kind of car he was driving, and Brian said he was driving his father's car, a blue Subaru station wagon. It was parked outside the police station, he told them, adding that his dog was in the car. The cop then asked him whether he thought anyone had found his parents' bodies, whether anybody knew about the crime. Brian said the bodies must have been found by now. He thought the police had probably come along not long after he left. Their neighbors must have heard the gunshots, he said, because their house was only 25 feet away, and he knew they were home because their car was in the driveway. It would have taken the police only two or three minutes to get there. Somebody would have to know about it, Brian said. Are you sure? the cop asked. Somebody would have to know by now, Brian repeated. The other cop asked Brian again why he had killed his parents. I've been crazy and possessed, he said. How do you mean, crazy and possessed? the officer asked. What do you mean? Can you tell us a little more detail what you mean by crazy and possessed? People have been following me around, Brian told him. People have been making fun of me and following me around and I've been hearing voices and I felt there were people in my attic. Are you religious? The officer asked. Yes, I am, Brian said. It was about five days ago that I realized it was the devil in my life. Later, in his incident report, Officer Timothy Hightower wrote, 
He could not stand it anymore and had to tell somebody he had killed his parents. He could offer no explanation as to why he shot his parents other than that the devil made him do it and Jesus made him confess. He further reported that he believed he had been followed by a group of conspirators who were agents of the devil. He believed the incident took place about two weeks ago. He said he used a shotgun loaded with 12-gauge buckshot. He said he had been possessed by the devil. He noted he believes that he has committed a sin by killing his parents, but now he believes that he had received forgiveness by the angel who speaks to him. Hightower placed a call to the Maryland police. Within the hour, Maryland returned the call. They asked Port St. Joe to hold the suspect until they could get a warrant for extraction. Brian's car was secured in the fire station, and the dog handler came for Onyx. The separation was traumatic for Brian. Onyx had bonded to him at a very young age and was his closest friend. The dog had been with Brian through everything. At the time, Officer Hightower wrote in his report, it was noted that he was more upset that the police officers were taking the dog to the pound than the fact that he had killed his parents. Brian spent four days in the jail at Port St. Joe. On the fourth day, because Maryland, like most states, outsources its long-distance transport of prisoners and fugitives, Officer Hightower handed Brian over to two representatives of a private, for-profit extradition company. After leading him outside, the two men handcuffed Brian, shackled him by the waist and ankles, and made him climb up into a cage in the back of a van with darkened windows. There were five other prisoners in the van already, sitting tightly packed in the suffocating heat. There was narrow air conditioning, no way to get comfortable or to sleep, and no way to go to the bathroom. The trip to Maryland took two weeks. First, they drove north, picking up and dropping off prisoners in Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, Illinois, and Michigan. Then they headed east to Ohio, then north again to New York, then south to Maryland by way of Pennsylvania and Delaware. Twice a day, the van would stop at a McDonald's restaurant. The men in the back would be unchained, taken inside, allowed to use the bathroom, and given two cheeseburgers and a large soda. At night, they'd be housed in local detention centers. One of the prisoners was very young and good-looking, and the security guards advised him with a grin to buy himself a jar of Vaseline. That was an excerpt from Makita Brotman's Couple Found Slain After a Family Murder. Once again, thanks to our readers and the International Anthem Recording Company. Makita, we were talking about true crime, and I'm a fan as well, and I do like how we, this went into the after effect of the crime. And I also saw, not in the last couple of years, like Hinckley got out, and I was very naive about how this process works, you know, the, and you know, when John Hinckley got released, I was actually shocked because, um, not because I thought he was like a bad person, but, you know, he shot Ronald Reagan, which, or shot at Ronald Reagan. And, and I, do you think that in general people's um, ideas about how the system works are limited? Because I had no idea that, that, you know, when I, when you were talking about a lot of these folks got out five, six, 10 years and that Brian was an outlier. I had no idea. You know, I just kind of thought, well, if you plead reason of sanity, you go to the hospital for the rest of your life. That, and to be totally honest, do you think that's common among society? I, I, I think it is. And the fact that you were shocked that Hin- Hinckley got out is interesting because if Hinckley had been sent to prison, if he'd been found competent and sent to prison, he would have probably been out, you know, for, okay, an attempted attempted homicide, it was on the president, but he, you know, I don't know how long he would have served, but probably 20 or 30 years with parole, he would have been out much earlier, I think. And it's probably because there was so much notoriety about that case that they kept him there so long. But I think people in general have the impression that when someone is found criminally insane, they're sent to a place that's either that's kind of like one of the dungeons in Silence of the Lambs with Hannibal Lecter in his straitjacket, where, you know, these evil insane people are kept wrapped in straitjackets or they think it's kind of a very cushy easy way out where you lounge around talking to your shrink now and then and um and it's a much better option which is and and that people can fake insanity in order to get out of, of doing prison time so i think there should be and people should be better educated about this and i think it's partly because of the way that you know, mental illness is portrayed in popular culture, even though there's a lot of awareness about mental illness in the general population, when it comes to people who've committed crimes, I think we're still confused because we still have that moral sensibility of that, you know, it's even though they're not guilty, we still feel that um, they should be punished. They shouldn't simply be 
treated like a person who's broken their leg and now their leg's recovered and they, they can go on with their lives. A lot of the patients too want, uh, well, I know Brian and I remember another story in the book. They actually want to go to prison to get out of Perkins. Um, because to, they'd be treated better in, in, their, in their view. Is, the, that, is that true, first I, of all? But first, I mean, that seems to me like the grass is greener because, I mean, I, I don't know if they would go to the penitentiary or minimum security or medium security, but it, to me that seems like a grass is greener thing. Like, I don't like it here, so I want to go to prison. But it's from what I read and and, and what I came to understand is, it, I mean, they could go out on visits and, and have food brought in, and, and it seemed better than prison. What What is your take on that? Well, the, the, apart from Brian, I talked to this, this other um, patient um, named Robert King who'd been in prison and back at Perkins and then back in prison again. So he knew what prison was like. In fact, he, was, he attacked a nurse in order to be sent to prison, which is something that, you know, Brian also committed a crime in the hospital in order to be sent to prison. And, of course, the conditions are not as good, but after you've been in a hospital for you know, 15, 20, 25 years, you often lost contact with your loved ones and relatives in the outside world, or they've, they've died, or they've moved away. And so you don't have the option of lots of visits and, and take away food and so on. But I think there's, there's two main reasons why prison is seen as preferable in certain cases. One is that you're, you have a determined sentence. And even if it's a life sentence, as it would have been for Brian, even then, there isn't this constant torture of hope you know, maybe if I say this to this doctor, maybe if I take this medication, that there's this kind of deferred finitude that never comes. And having a 30-year or 40-year or even a life sentence is preferable to that. And the other reason is because there's a certain amount of dignity. I mean, Mr. King told me that when he's when he was in prison, if he didn't want to go to breakfast, he didn't want to go to breakfast. It wasn't seen as a, a symptom of his pathology and jotted down in his file. He was treated with more respect and more dignity, just like anyone else. He wasn't being seen constantly as someone who was suffering from an illness. And so his behavior was seen as just like an, he was seen as an agent making moral decisions like anyone else and not uh, a mental patient. But I mean, w- one of the reasons that they're there is they do have an illness. And that, that was one of the things that I had kind of a little bit of friction with with the book, because, I mean, they... The people were found not criminally responsible because they were insane. I guess the question is, is there a point when these people are not insane? Is there a way to determine this? It it seems very... um, that's what I was curious. Yeah, kind of. It seems kind of incoherent, you know. Whether whether, you know, this. In some cases, I can see from your book. Well, you know, some some of the doctors just wanted to fill the patients with with medication, and and that served some purposes, and it, it served other purposes as well. But I mean, one of the fuzzy things was that you know clearly Brian was mentally ill. I don't think there's any argument about that. You know, when when he committed uh, this this homicide, he he was ill. Is there a point, though, where somebody can reliably say, well, he isn't ill, and it's, it's very different than a broken leg that we know is healed? Yeah, I think, again, you've put, your, you've put your finger on it because that's the problem. I mean, I agree that there are people who are dangerously psychotic, dangerously mentally ill, as Brian was when he committed the crime, who should be kept away from the public, who are dangerous to themselves and to the public. And there's no question that they should not be released. I mean, it's, it's, it's very clear. But in the majority of cases, the situation isn't like that. They may be stable when they're on medication, but there may be no one who can look after them in the community or to be sure that they take medication. There may be people who have certainly done well within the confines of the hospital, but they're not in situations that they would be in in the outside world where they might encounter all kinds of you know, hostility and aggression and not be able to know how to deal with it. So I think it's a, it's a really difficult balance in that between, you know, erring on the side of caution on the one hand and then people's individual choices and preferences and dignity on the other. Many people who are released might, for example, choose to live in isolation away from the community. And that can be problematic because... If, you're, if you don't have people to kind of keep you grounded and make sure that you're taking medication and telling you that 
what you're believing is not actually true, that it's a delusion, you could become dangerous again. But on the other hand, people have a, the right to live in the woods on their own if they want to. Um, so it's, it, and, you know, it's a question that gets into all these um, issues of choice and freedom and all of the things that, you know, that the, all of these constitutional issues versus medical issues, which are not supposed to be moral. And I think there's like, we're mixing up, I mean, not as personally, but the, the, the system mixes up a medical and a moral vocabulary and gets tangled in knots. And then of course there's money and the insurance companies and, you know, pharmaceutical companies uh, in the mix too. So yeah, it's a very, very vexed question. And unfortunately there are many people like Brian who just uh, end up, I believe, being held when they, when they could live perfectly successful and um, productive lives in the community. We're speaking with the author, Makita Brotman. Her new book is called Couple Found Slain After a Family Murder. It's out now from Henry Holt. We need to take a quick break here to remind folks of the people that make the station possible. When we come back, we're going to hear another excerpt from Makita's book, and we're going to continue our conversation with her. You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpen Radio. This is I-94. This summer on I-94, Joe Mino, Makita Brotman, Nancy DeCampo, J.P. Olson and Luke Walden, Tom Lynn, Atticus Lish, Paget Powell, Peter Cameron, Margot Mifflin, Chris Ware, and many, many more. Only on Lumpen's Books and Literature show, I-94, every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. And now, back to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. In mid-1997, Perkins authorities made the decision to admit a television crew inside the hospital for an episode of the A&E television show, Investigative Reports, titled Untying the Straitjacket. The documentary was meant to educate the public about the insanity defense, which had been a source of public outrage since 1982, when John Hinckley Jr. was found not guilty by reason of insanity for his attempted assassination of President Ronald Reagan. Hinckley was clearly delusional, driven by an obsession with the actress Jodie Foster, yet people claimed the legal system made it too easy for juries to return not guilty verdicts in insanity cases. The Hinckley verdict had led to changes in the law that made it much more difficult for a dependent to plead insanity. Within three years of the verdict, 34 states, in addition to Congress, had shifted the burden of proving insanity to the defense, eight states had adopted a separate verdict of guilty but mentally ill, and one state, Utah, had abolished the defense altogether. Congress had also narrowed the terms of the defense itself. The Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984 required the defendant to prove the existence of a severe mental disease that made him, quote, unable to appreciate the nature and quality of the wrongfulness of his acts, unquote, not just at the time of the crime, but in general. By the time Untying the Straitjacket was filmed, however, these concerns were less imperative, and the pendulum was swinging back in the other direction. Hosted by Bill Curtis and filmed at Clifton Perkins in the Kirby Forensic Psychiatric Center in New York, the documentary purports to uncover the facts and fictions of the criminally insane. In his introduction, Curtis explains that the insanity defense is not an easy way of avoiding prison and that it succeeds only when a defendant is severely psychotic. In this sense, the documentary is enlightened and sympathetic, aiming to reduce the stigma of mental illness. At the same time, however, it panders to old cliches, alluding implicitly to violent men, ruined lives, the strange contortions of the sex drive. Viewers are lured with hints of the horror awaiting them behind closed doors, where they'll come face to face with the dangerously mentally ill who have committed brutal acts of unspeakable savagery. In Untying the Straitjacket, the Brian Beck told of mid-1997, a 29-year-old psychiatric patient has been caught and preserved in the amber of digital videotape. He's one of the first patients to appear in the documentary and one of the most memorable. At this point, he's been at Perkins for just over five years, and he's still open, earnest, and upbeat about his treatment and prognosis. It's not surprising that he was chosen to appear on camera. When we first meet him, he's sitting on a chair in his room. On a chest of drawers beside him are framed photographs of his dogs. Brian is good-looking, with pale skin and blue eyes whose color is brought out by his blue and white polo shirt. No longer the thin young man described by Officer Hightower in Port St. Joe, he now has the muscular chest and thick neck of an amateur weightlifter. 
His full black hair is cut into the hospital's standard bull haircut, and he has closely cropped beard somewhere between stubble and goatee. When he talks, he's earnest, but also shy and slightly wary. He speaks seriously, his voice slowed and a little blurred by the effects of medication. Ten minutes before I shot my parents, I didn't know I was going to shoot my parents, he tells the interviewer. I never thought it would happen to me. I never thought I'd be in this position. I never thought that this is going to be my lot in life, that I would kill my parents, and I just have to live with it from day to day. The camera moves in on Brian's face, then cuts to a self-assured man in a beige suit and white tie, identified as Dr. Jonathan Briskin. When Brian committed his crime, he was suffering from delusions, the psychiatrist explains. He believed that he was in danger and that he had to do what he did in order to prevent something worse from happening. Later in the documentary, Bill Curtis, with Stentorian Solemnity, briefly describes Brian's crime in voiceover as the camera shows Brian walking down the hall of his ward past a busy nurse's station in a bustling day room. In this scene, he's wearing cargo pants and a beige polo shirt, and he holds a cup of coffee from which, as he walks past the camera, he awkwardly sips. For some reason, the scene plays in slow motion, which makes it seem stilted and unnatural. We encounter Brian again a little later in the documentary, performing a vigorous workout routine. Dressed in a t-shirt that depicts a Rottweiler eating a triple-decker club sandwich, he launches into an energetic set of push-ups, his feet raised on a tabletop, his fists clenched against the floor. The process of moving off a locked ward is both slow and tedious, Bill Curtis informs us. Brian Bechtold has never acted out in five years since he arrived at Perkins after murdering his parents, but because of his extremely violent crime, doctors are still reluctant to give him more degrees of freedom. Welcome once again to another edition of I-94. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Howdy. And you just heard an excerpt from the book Couple Found Slain After a Family Murder by Makita Brotman. It's out now from Henry Holt. It's available at every good bookstore and I hope every good library. And we've been talking with Makita for the past half hour about her book. Uh, before the break, Makita, we were kind of trying to wrap our heads around how someone who is found uh, not guilty by reason of being mentally ill might be reintegrated into society. And one of the things I wanted to ask you, because it was very thought-provoking in your book, you, you kind of hint that some of the diagnoses that are made by the psychiatrists in hospitals and, in fact, made in court in the case of the subject of your book uh, don't necessarily hold up to scrutiny. Um, I wanted to kind of dig into that a little bit because, you know, unlike um, any other illness, uh, we still don't understand a great deal about mental illness or the brain. I think that's a, a fairly straightforward and reasonable thing to say. But when it gets mixed up with criminal pathology and with our justice system, uh, it not only is there another level added to that, but things take an extremely different turn. Can you talk about maybe the responsibilities that these psychiatrists at Perkin have, but also can you talk a little bit about why there doesn't seem to be as much um, time and attention paid maybe to particular patients or maybe to digging into some of these illnesses in the hopes that these patients might uh, gain more dignity and, and might actually become valuable members of the community again? I think, and in, in, I can only really talk about Brian's case in, in this situation, but I think it's kind of indicative of the way that the judicial system thinks about these cases. So Brian went to a, a couple of hearings. One, he, re he represented himself at trial to be allowed to not to be treated for cancer when he got cancer because he decided he'd rather be dead than, than have cancer. And he wanted the right not to take the medication. And then he went to court again later um, to... Uh, to try and get out of Perkins, so to have a, a discharge hearing. Both of them were jury trials. And the problem that that occurred in both cases for Brian was that even though he represented himself very well, even though he was very articulate and persuasive, even though he managed to counter the opinions of the doctors, in the end, the the judiciary always seemed to defer to the psychiatrist because I think there's a, a lot of mysticism around psychiatry and there's a sense that, you know, I think the jury in Brian's case, or at least the judge in Brian's case would think that, well, this person looks sane. He seems sane. He seems articulate, seems like a really nice guy, knows what he's talking about. He's talked about his diagnosis. He seems to understand that he was mentally ill, that what he did is wrong. But there are these things under the surface that ordinary people don't know about 
and psychiatrists do, things like thought content, which, which can't be understood except if, how it manifests itself in words and actions. And Brian's words and actions that were healthy, but people were saying there were still problems with his thought content. And things like that, I think, are simply um, like get-out clauses for the judiciary to say, well, he seems okay to me, but I'm not an expert. I don't want to make that decision. I'm going to defer to the psychiatrist. If they still think he should be kept in the hospital, then he should be in the hospital. Instead, and, and what the jury system is for, really, is for people to make up their own minds about these things and not to necessarily uh, defer to psychiatrists, especially when the point of the trial is to say, you know, to make up, to have a, a kind of um, objective jury look at Brian's case and say, well, does this like seem like a, a rational candidate for release to you, not to the psychiatrist? So I think people are always going to defer to the psychiatrist because there's kind of mysticism around it. I imagine there's probably fear too in, in the case of King and, and, and Brian. Let's, you know, let's say they did allow him to be released and then he commits another crime. And I'm not saying that would happen, but I, I think there might be fear in the background of the jury. And I was also going to ask you, you know, like in the case of King where he attacked a nurse and went to prison, how do they, I mean, isn't there backlash about that? Because he's gone to this hospital because he's been declared unfit for trial. Is he no longer unfit for trial and he commits another crime? I, it just seems like such a a mess. I don't know even how else to describe it. You're right. It 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 really is a mess. And I'm I'm not really a, an expert on these things, but what I wanted to do in the book was, I mean, Brian's story itself was really fascinating. And I wanted to kind of trace his story through the hospital from his rather, you know, optimistic, positive first years there to the way that things went downhill and his trials with medication and his experiences with the doctors. And I'm not I don't want to make any kind of general statements in the book about the, the psychiatric system or even the judiciary, but from Brian's experience and knowing that there are a lot of other people in similar situations to Brian, it's, this is a part of the story that we don't get to hear. And I wanted to, to tell you it's hard to, to, to find sympathy for the, for the perpetrator rather than the victim because the narratives that we tell don't tend to take that perspective. Well, I also think if I was on a jury, and you know, do they hear his – I mean, he attacked staff. He refused to take his medication. He went in and told a doctor that he was a martial artist. He escaped. I mean, wouldn't all these things apply too when the jury's listening? Oh, sure, sure. I mean, and in fact, even worse than that, you know, the jury are told, judge this person on the things that you hear in the courtroom and not on any other extraneous matter, as with all trials. Um, Brian was accused of rule breaking. Brian asked the expert, give me an example of rule breaking. The doctor says, well, murdering your parents is an example of breaking the rules. Oh, I mean, that yeah, wouldn't be allowed. That. Yeah, that's parents. ridiculous. <laughs> and, and yet the jury were allowed to to hear that and so um so and all of those things that you described that brian did he you're right he did those things but i i think if i were in that situation i'd probably try and escape i'd probably attack a nurse i mean i don't see those as symptoms pathology i see those as normal human reactions to being kept in an intolerable situation um so yes uh, yes he committed them but who's to say that you or I wouldn't commit similar acts in similar circumstances? My point was, I think, just it would be hard to sway a jury. You know, that's I, I, I agree. Like, if I was in the mm. hospital, I would probably try and escape, too. Um, you know, especially after reading your book, which takes us through the whole process. But I was just, you know, my point, I think, is, like, if a jury hears, like, escape, <clears throat> attack, med refusal, they're going to be like, oh, well. And then, you know, what you said about when the the – I, I suppose it would be the prosecutor said about, you know, you murdered your parents. Well, well what, it was a doctor that said that. Oh, the it was doctor. A, the Nigerian doctor. And that, that actually brings up something I want to ask you because you, you make the, the point subtly in your book that some of the people who are allegedly overseeing these patients also have problems. I mean, one of the doctors is oh, yeah. 
is disbarred because he's uh, stalking somebody and he's he's crazy. Um, how is it that these people who are put in charge of so many other people are actually certified? And is there any real kind of control on this? I, I think that was a a rare event. I think it's a rare event that a psychiatrist is found criminally insane himself. But I, I do think that we have this like binary sense of thinking that you're either you're either a doctor or a patient, um, you're either a victim or a perpetrator. And in fact, you know, psychiatrists are ordinary people. They suffer from mental illness themselves. I don't think they're immune to the um, to the anxieties and, and depressions of, of the world, and in fact, might even um, have have more to deal with than uh, other people. So there are no, you know, you don't have to take a, a character test to be a to be a psychiatrist. And psychiatrists have a very uh, high rate of alcoholism and other things. So I think you know, thinking of because someone has high degrees or that they have a certain amount of experience in a field makes them morally superior is is, is not obviously the right way to think. Yeah, I think in our society, too, we tend to put everybody as bad or good, you know, or liberal or conservative. And there's so, you know, there's, we've lost a lot of nuance. And I think in the criminal system, you know, that's how people look at it. They're bad or they're good. We don't look at their backgrounds. We don't look at, and, and people do, but I'm just saying in general. And, you know, again, Brian's parents were just, I mean, emotionally abusive physically abusive they, you know the, the sister left as soon as she could and you know the I father could, was an alcoholic the, and yeah, yeah i mean just you know it's just like everything you wouldn't want to have in a family upbringing was there does that mean it's okay to kill your parents i don't know i, I imagine everyone's thought about it at some point or the other and, and but you know i it, we don't take into account all those things for like a nuanced discussion it's always good or bad, in, in my opinion. I think that's the way our society has been moving. So it's 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 a it's a complicated mess, as a, I'll continue to say. So one of the things that struck me also was that Brian's embrace of religion was used against him. You know, in a in a criminal in a court system, um, I'm sorry, in a, in a prison, you know, that'd be looked at as a positive thing. What? Why was his embrace of religion looked at as a negative thing? Yeah, that was that's very disturbing, and I found that that was something that would have been a real help to Brian and a real comfort if he'd been. I mean, he 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 does have religious beliefs, and he wanted to practice them and talk about them. But he found after he'd been in the hospital for a while that that was seen as a symptom of his schizophrenia. Religiosity was seen as a schiz- a symptom of schizophrenia, and he was even a psychiatrist even made a note that increasing his medication might help counter his religiosity and it was partly because he didn't belong to any organized religion if he'd been a member of a group uh, an established church even if it was voodoo or snake handling or you know that would have been acceptable because there were other people who believed in what he believed in but because it was something he'd come to himself from reading the bible it was seen as part of his individual pathology and not that he was saved for example or that this could be a real comfort to him. Instead, it was seen as, well, he's deluded and thinks he's special. I mean, was that is that a common thing, though, or is this unique to him? Because I, I found that extremely strange. You know, in, in, in most incarceration systems, you know, patients are actually encouraged to find they religion. Are, yeah. And in 12-step programs, people are in, encouraged to em- embrace a higher being. So was this unusual just to him or is this something yeah. that is is more widespread? Well, it's I think it's uh, it's it's common amongst people who've been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and they're surrounded by people who are looking out for symptoms of that and interpreting their behavior um, as symptomatic of that because after all it when you come down to it religion is believing in something that doesn't exist outside yourself, which could be interpreted as a delusion. And it certainly was, in Brian's case, interpreted as this person is suffering from delusions and that this is a system of thought that has no basis in rationality, which kind of is what many people think religion is. But if you went to the the hospital chapel sessions or you talked to the hospital chaplain, that wouldn't have been a problem. It was just he had his own system of religious interpretation. That, that That's what the problem was. 
We've been speaking with Makita Brotman. Her new book is called Couple Found Slain After a Family Murder. It's out now from Henry Holt. Makita, before we let you go, and thank you so much again for spending time with us today, what do you have coming up next? I mean, obviously this book has just been put out in paper by Henry Holt, but what's next in the cards for you? Um, I'm hoping to, I've I've finished a work of fiction, but people seem to think it's too dark, so I guess I need to lighten it up a little bit. (laughs) Too too dark in what what way? We don't find things dark yeah, here, I was gonna so say, send it our in, way in when it's way? ready. <laughs> Makita, I also just, oh. I just wanted to say, too, I, I want to thank you for being patient with us because I know that we're kind of taking this from a very broad spectrum. But, like, I honestly had no idea about these things, and I just want to thank you for your, um, you know, your articulate explanations of how you think things work and, and being and, – and, allowing us to expand beyond just, you know, just Brian. I appreciate that. So thank you. Thanks for your great questions. We've been speaking again with Makita Brodman. Her new book is Couple Found Slain After a Family Murder. It's out from Henry Holt. With that, we're going to give her the last word, as we always do here on I-94. We're going to hear one final excerpt. Once again, thanks to our reader, Shannon Van Volt. Thanks to Jamie Branch. Thanks to International Anthem. And Makita, thank you. Thanks for spending time with us here on I-94. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Makita. The jury then retired to decide first whether Brian suffered from a mental disability, second, if so, whether he lacked the understanding or capacity to make responsible decisions about his health care because of his mental disability, and, if so, whether appointing Perkins Hospital as his guardian was, quote, less restrictive than any other form of intervention, end quote, that would be consistent with his welfare and safety. The last part of the question was very confusing. After deliberating for an hour, the jury foreman handed a question to the judge. We don't understand a lesser form of intervention, it read. What are the other forms of intervention? Well, I guess that's the question, said Judge Sweeney, who didn't seem to know more than the jury did. I'm happy to hear both parties on this. Does anybody have a suggestion? There aren't many other alternatives, said Alice Ike. I don't think they understand it because no one's explained it to them. In fact, lesser forms of intervention could easily have been used in Brian's case. They included things like asking the patient in detail to explain his own plan of action, asking family members to get involved, assigning a court-appointed guardian ad litem, or referring the case to a state ethics committee. But it had been a long day and no one wanted to bring up another complicated issue that might keep them in the courtroom longer. The jury was getting restless. The hearing had gone on all afternoon and a big winter storm was coming in. There was talk about driving conditions and the possibility of heavy traffic. Alice Ike excused herself due to childcare obligations. Nobody wanted to hang around puzzling out the meaning of an ambiguous clause in state law. Maybe it's a matter for summary judgment, Judge Sweeney resolved. The evidence is extraordinarily sketchy in this case. It wasn't clear what he meant by this, whether the evidence of Brian's mental capacity was sketchy, or that there was only sketchy evidence of mental illness. There were further mutterings about the weather, then Judge Sweeney made a decision. With this snowstorm coming in, he said, I'm not inclined to keep this jury much longer. The jury was recalled. All right, the judge said. Ladies and gentlemen, your question to me was that you don't understand less restrictive than any other form of intervention. Your focus on that question after my discussions led me to conclude that I thought the record on the case on that issue is sufficiently undeveloped that it's not really fair to ask you to make that decision on that based on the information presented at this trial. On that note, a mistrial was announced. It's starting to snow, the judge concluded, but the roads are still very good so you don't have to worry about getting home. There was nothing for Brian to do except let the guards drive him back to Perkins and wait for the paperwork to be processed in a new trial date set. Meanwhile, the court granted the hospital temporary authority to make medical decisions on his behalf. Ever since he'd been judged not criminally responsible, Brian felt as though he'd been treated like a child who didn't understand the implications of his actions. If he'd been sent to the Department of Corrections rather than the Department of Mental Health, although he'd be serving a long prison sentence, at least he'd be treated like an adult, his choices and rights taken seriously. Now he'd tried taking his case to court, and the court essentially deferred to the doctors, handing over authority to the hospital rather than thinking things through for themselves. Maybe the jury felt he couldn't have it both ways. He couldn't claim that he wasn't responsible for the murder of his parents, and then claim to be responsible enough to make his own decisions when it came to his health. Maybe they felt a person was either mentally ill or sane, and that they couldn't go from one to the other when it happened to suit them. Still, people recovered from physical illness, so why shouldn't they recover from mental illness, too? 
The problem, Brian realized, was that nobody was prepared to challenge the opinions of the psychiatrist who kept emphasizing the point that mental illness wasn't always visible. After all, Brian had killed his parents. And if his doctors, who were supposed to know him inside and out, said he was still sick and dangerous, then nobody was prepared to disagree. Rather than weighing the evidence for themselves when so much was at stake, it was much easier for people to play it safe and accept what the experts told them. This was true even of the judge. As Brian was beginning to learn, the courts rarely gave serious consideration to the requests of a petitioner who was an inmate in a mental institution. The issues these hearings usually brought up, questions about the limits of personal responsibility, were ethically and morally complex, but instead of taking them seriously and looking objectively at the evidence for themselves, judges and juries preferred to submit to the authority of psychiatrists, whose diagnoses and prognoses provided the illusion that they were standing on solid ground. In other words, the courts regarded these questions not as human dilemmas, but as medical questions regarding legal interventions as an impediment to effective care. In his 1976 book, Insanity Inside Out, Kenneth Donaldson, a psychiatric patient who was kept in Florida State Hospital for 15 years without treatment and with no evidence of mental illness, recalled that whenever he went to court to fight for release, his current doctors would simply point to the preconceived notions of his original doctors, which were accepted by the courts as fact without weighing evidence in open court as both defense of themselves and proof of my illness. Thirty years later, it appears, things have changed very little. I-94 is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Makita Brotman, author of Couple Found Slain, out now from Henry Holt. This episode originally aired on July 15, 2021. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.